Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. This morning we're going to be in Zechariah chapter 8. We're going to read the entire chapter, but our focus is going to just be on the first eight verses. And then what we're going to do is uh, next week we'll read the eighth chapter of Zechariah again, and we'll talk about the rest of the chapter. As you're turning to Zechariah chapter 8, I need to tell you, since we since we just affirmed our faith with the Apostles' Creed, I it made me think of a funny incident that occurred um, when I was working at Humphrey. I was working at a funeral for Humphrey earlier this year, and a man had died, and he was a devout Catholic. And his kids, um, you could tell that his kids, they might have been raised Catholic, um, but you could tell they weren't all that religious. You could tell they weren't, they they. They lacked a certain. They lacked belief in God, maybe, um, but you could tell they weren't that connected to, to the beliefs of, of the church. And the reason I say that is because when we were working with the family to plan the service, uh, one of the questions we always ask is, um, is there a particular scripture? Is there a particular passage of scripture that you would like read, or recited at the at the service? And they said, they said, well, you know, Dad read the Bible a lot, uh, so yeah, we should probably pick something from the Bible. And one of the kids goes, I know. <laughs> let's, uh, you know, he liked the Apostles' Creed, so let's, let's say the Apostles' Creed. And me and the funeral director who was working, who was, who was helping him plan the service, kind of looked at each other because we both knew the Apostles' Creed's not in the Bible. <laughs> So, I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, Zechariah chapter 8. We're going to read the entire chapter. If you have Zechariah 8, if you would, um, stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. Now just just stop and think about that one sentence for a second. I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor, I am zealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people, in these days will it also be marvelous in my eyes. 
says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who have been hearing in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets who spoke in the day of the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts that the temple might be built. For before these days there were no wages, nor man, nor any hire for beast. There was no peace from the enemy for whoever went in or came out. For I set all men, everyone, against his neighbor. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people's as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts, for the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these, and it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear, let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent. So again in these days I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor and do not love a false oath. For all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came, then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. Therefore love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord, and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This ends the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. Maybe seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I trust you this morning to implant the good news of your Son in our hearts through this text. I trust your promises to go to go through. I trust your promises that your word would not go forth void, and it will accomplish the very purpose that you intend for it. Now I pray that our hearts and minds would be open and receptive to your voice that our sins would be washed away through the washing of regeneration that comes from your word. We ask it all in your son's name. Amen. As we've been walking through the book of Zechariah off and on, um, what we see is that the foundations of the temple have been laid and the people need encouragement. They, be, they have begun building the temple back, but they need encouragement to keep going. And this is what we saw when we looked at Haggai earlier this year. The people need encouragement to keep going. They need that push. They need that drive. And so what God does in Zechariah chapter 8 is He sets a vision for the future that He intends for them in front of them. He puts, he puts a vision for the future in front of them so that they could have a goal to move towards. 
And of course, it seems impossible, it seems unlikely. But God says, if it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people, in verse 6, in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord. Now, we don't really get this since we're translating from Hebrew into English. But the word marvelous, it means something, it means something big. It doesn't just mean it's good. It doesn't just mean it's great. It means it's something big. It's something huge. It's almost something impossible. And so a good way to translate this would be to say, if it is impossible in the eyes of the remnant of this people, will it also be impossible in my eyes, says the Lord. And so what God says is it looks impossible to you, but it's very possible for me because all things are possible for me. And so God sets a future in front of them. And this is, this, is, this is relevant for our culture, I think, because we live in a world where people don't seem to have a vision for their future. People don't seem to have a vision for, for their future. Matter of fact, there's, this is pretty evident in, um, in John Green's novel, The Fault in Our Stars. The main character, Hazel Grace Lancaster, she's, uh, she's an edgy teenage character. And she thinks she's cool, and she thinks she has a, a firm grasp on the world. She's quite intelligent, but at, but at a young age, she was diagnosed with stage 4 thyroid cancer with mastasis forming in her lungs. And so because of this, this diagnosis of cancer at a young age, she thinks that gives her the right to make outlandish assumptions about the ways of the world, which she has no clue about. And for an example, this is what she says towards the beginning of the book. She goes on this tirade about the, the prospect of oblivion. And I want you to, and I'm going to read this portion of the book to you, but I want you to, as I do that, I want you to think about how, how the world, this, this is the attitude of the world in which we live. This is the attitude of the culture in which we live. This is what she says. She says, there will come a time when all of us are dead. All of us. There will come a time when there are no human beings remaining to remember that anyone ever existed or that our species ever did anything. There will be no one left to remember Aristotle or Cleopatra, let alone you. Everything that we did and built and wrote and thought and discovered will be forgotten, and all of this will be for naught. Maybe that time is coming soon, and maybe it is millions of years away. But even if we survive the collapse of our sun, we will not survive forever. There was a time before organisms experienced consciousness, and there will be time after. And if the inevitability of human oblivion worries you, I encourage you to ignore it. God knows that's what everyone else does. Now that sounds cool. It sounds edgy. It sounds like what a lot of people actually believe. Once you're dead, you're dead. When the cosmos ceases to exist, all will be forgotten. However, if that's actually true, then explain to me why there is an innate, there is an innate desire to plan for the future in everyone and in everything. Every time a, a human being wakes up, they think about the future because they're thinking about what they've got to do after they get out of bed. Every time, uh, every time someone grows, uh, grows vegetables and, and they can what they're not going to eat right away, they plan for the future. Every time you clock in at work, you're working for a paycheck that you're not going to see for at least the next two weeks. As humans, not even as Christians, but just as regular humans, there's something that drives us to plan for the future, to work for the future. 
to, there's something in us that wants to live for the future. It's almost like God has given us an internal biological rhythm that pushes us to look forward to something beyond our present circumstances. In Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, where he talks about the kingdom of God, he closes out the book by arguing for the necessity of belief in the future of humanity. He's talking about God's unfolding plan for the, for the purpose of the people that He's created. And, and this is what Willard says. He says that human life and consciousness requires by its very nature a projected future. And everyone is deeply concerned to know what that future is. Everyone has questions about what the future is going to look like. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. There's, there's something in the back of your mind that is concerned about what's going to happen. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen in a month? What's going to happen in a year from now? What bad news is the new is, is what bad news is Fox News going to tell us next? What's the next flash bulletin that's going to come up on the TV? What's going to happen to the government? What's going to happen to our nation? What's going to happen to us personally? There's something within us that wants to know what's in the future. That's why a lot of charlatans have made a lot of money trying to read fortunes and trying to tell the future. People want to know what's coming around the corner. And so there's got to be meaning to our existence. There's got to be meaning to the way we live. Willard goes on to say, meaning is not a luxury for us. It is a kind of spiritual oxygen, we might say, that enables our souls to live. It is a going beyond, a transcendence of whatever state we are in towards that which completes it. The meaning of present events in human life is largely a matter of what comes later. Thus, anything that has no future is meaningless in the human order. What Willard is arguing is that the only way you're going to have any kind of life now in the present is if you have a vision for the future. That's precisely why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that God has set eternity in our hearts. And so, this is what we see. This is the vision that God has for us. That what we see in our text in Zechariah 8 is a picture of the future that God has planned for Jerusalem and ultimately for us. And God wants that vision of the future to be in front of them so that it can strengthen them to press forward into what God has called them to do. That's precisely why Proverbs 29.18 tells us that where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no vision, the people perish. And so God puts a vision of the future in front of them and he says, let your hands be strong. And so as we look at Zechariah chapter 8, specifically at verses 1 through 8 this morning, what we see is three things. We see the fervor, we see the future, and we see the favor. The fervor, the future, and the favor. Look at the first two verses in chapter 8 again. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor, I am zealous for her. Now, the King James Version and the NIV, both and other translations, often translate zealous as jealous. And it's because those words in biblical terms 
um, they mean pretty much the same thing in reference to God. When we talk about jealousy in our modern vocabulary, we're talking about a feeling of, of fear that's tied to the possibility of loss. That's tied to the possibility of losing something you have. Now, of course, we know that God isn't in a position to lose anything that belongs to Him. However, however, when the Bible speaks about God being a jealous God or God being a zealous God, it's not using the term jealousy in the same way that, that we use it. When the Bible speaks about God being jealous, what it means is that there is an intense passion within God for the glory that He gets from being in relationship with His people. Kirk Wellam has defined the jealousy of God as His holy commitment to His honor, glory, and love that manifests itself in the salvation of His people. And so that's, that's the working definition of the zeal of God that I'd like for us to have in mind this morning is God's holy commitment to His honor, glory, and love that manifests itself in our salvation. And so if we take Wellam's definition of jealousy and apply it to the text, here's what we get. That before we, before we even get to the substance of the promise of the future, we start with the zeal of God. We start, we start with God's own commitment of His glory, honor, and love. So let's break this down. God isn't intent on keeping His promise to us because we're good or because we deserve it. God is intent on, his, on keeping His promises to us because He is good. If you have saving faith in Christ, God is committed to your salvation from beginning to end. That's why Paul says in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. And so if you have saving faith in Christ, God is committed to your salvation from beginning to end. That's why the writer of Hebrews refers to him as the author and the finisher of our faith. This is something we need to understand on a deep level. Because our commitment to God is only possible because of His unbreakable commitment to us. If we're faithful, it's because He's faithful. John says in 1 John 4.19 that we love because He first loved us. Another thing that we should take note of is that the, the zeal of God and the jealousy of God aren't just passions. They're not just fly-by-night emotions. They're not just feelings. They actually accomplish something. If you look back at one of the more famous messianic prophecies in Isaiah 9, you can actually see what the zeal of God does in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is a passage that we often read around Christmas time. Listen, listen to this, to what Isaiah says. He says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. Listen to the last line of that prophecy. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The zeal of God actually provides the means of salvation. God's zeal, God's determined commitment actually accomplishes His purpose. And think about that in comparison to us. Our own determination, our own fervor, our own zeal doesn't do anything for us unless we act on it. However, when God is determined to accomplish something, His very determination causes His will to be enacted. 
The way it works for us is we have to have a sense of determination first, and then we have to make a choice to act on our determination. So, so our action is a result of our zeal, but in God, His zeal is productive. God's zealousness, God's commitment to His own glory is an attribute of who He is. So for us, zeal is like an emotion, and we're, we're, and we're not defined by our emotions. Our emotions are ontologically separate from who we are as human beings, even though they, they're what drive and motivate us sometimes. God, on the other hand, isn't subject to emotions like we are. This is what theologians describe as the impassibility of God. This is why Thomas Aquinas, when he was engaging with the philosophy of Aristotle, referred to God as the unmoved mover. God is the unmoved mover. He is not moved by the situations that we are moved by. And yet He moves us. And so that's the fervor. That's God's passionate commitment to His glory that He gets in our salvation. And so now we see a picture of the future. Look at verses 3 through 6. When we get to verses 3 through 6, we see this beautiful picture of the future that God intends for His people to have. If you were to ask someone, what does the kingdom of heaven look like? There would probably be a multitude of answers. Jesus tells stories about the kingdom of heaven, and He would always start out with the kingdom of heaven is like this, the kingdom of God is like that, and that's what makes up the parables, the majority of the parables. So the Bible provides us lots of pictures and lots of imagery to describe the kingdom of heaven. But Zechariah chapter 8 verses 4 and 5 provides us with a picture of what we might not normally think of in terms of what heaven looks like. Look at verses 3 through 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Notice verses 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Think about that. We don't live in a world where it's safe for kids to just play in the streets anymore. We don't. It seems like once a week there's, there's a new missing child that's being spoken about on the news. If you follow all of the news media outlets on, on Facebook, you're going to come across a missing child every few days. And many of them are never found. There's even silver alerts that notify us about o older people with Alzheimer's and dementia going missing. I used to go to church with a lady years ago whose husband had Alzheimer's. And about 10 or 15 years ago, he managed to get up and walk out of the house without anyone noticing, and he was never found. Our world is not safe. It's not safe because of sin, and that, and that can be because of the sinful actions of people, or it can just be as a result of sickness and disease that entered the world through original sin. Think about it. Think about it. it let's just assume that every single human being on the face of the earth behaved right. Like, let's just say, in a perfect world, if our world were, were perfect in that way, everyone made good decisions all the time, no one sinned against their neighbor, Be because this is not heaven, it would still be a dangerous world. 
Because even, even nature itself is affected by original sin. We would still get sick. We would still see the effects of disease. We would still see the effects of, of we would still see the effects of the animal kingdom eating each other to survive, which is not a picture that we see in, in the prophecies concerning heaven in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, it says in one place that the lion will lay down with the lamb. And so the world in which we live is not safe, and it's not safe because of sin. But God gives Zechariah a vision for the future that revolves around the safety and security of every single person. And he, and he uses the example of older people and children. Why, why older people and, and children? Why are they pictured here? It's because they're the most vulnerable people in society. God is saying that even the most vulnerable people in His kingdom will have safety and rest. This is what God intends for His people. And it's what He intends for His kingdom. And that goes all the way back to what we covered a few months ago in Zechariah chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where the angel told Zechariah that Jerusalem would be a city without walls. And the reason there won't be any walls is because God says in Zechariah 2.5, He says, I, the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. When we sing the lily of the valley, that's why we sing a wall of fire about me. I have nothing now to fear. That's the future that God wants for us. That's the future that God wants to put in front of us. And when I, when, I read this text of, when I read this text about old men and women sitting in the streets and children playing in the streets, I can't help but think about the restoration of all things. I can't help but think about what a lot of theologians refer to as the consummation of the age. The millennium the final part of the millennial reign. When Christ has come back and things are made right. And so I think about all of the losses that we experience down here. We lose our spouses, we lose our loved ones. We lose our children. But in the kingdom of God, when Christ comes back to set everything right, all that is lost will be restored. All that is lost will be restored. A few months ago, in the middle of June, a couple months ago in the middle of June, we lost my grandpa unexpectedly. And then a couple weeks ago, a friend's nephew, I mentioned it, we prayed for the family. A friend's nephew was five years old, and I, I think they were swimming or something, and he drowned. And so, you think about all of the losses that we go through. Many of them are unexpected losses. And when you see this picture in Zechariah 8, 4, and 5, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. 
the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. It's, it's a picture of all things that are restored. You think about the Bible. You think about the lifespan of many people since from the time of Genesis, on, from the time of Genesis on throughout the, on throughout the history of humanity, there were, there were people in the book of Genesis who lived to be hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of years old. The oldest man in the Bible, Methuselah, was listed as being over 900 years old. And then as you progress throughout the age, then as you progress throughout human history, the lifespans got shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And then, with the advancement of medical technology, lifespan is the average lifespan of a human being is increasing. I think about that a lot because I think God intends for his I mean God intends for his people to live forever. But I think as we continue I think as we continue throughout human history, we're going to see a point in human history where as we, as we continue with medical advancements that the, human, that, the, that the average age of humans is going to get longer. Sorry about that. Um, the average age of humans are going to get longer. And then eventually it's going to culminate in the coming of Christ. And that one will live forever. Because here's the thing, we think through our medical advancements that we can eventually advance ourselves to a point where we can beat death. That's what people want. They want to live longer. They want to avoid death. They want to avoid the aging process. But they can't do it. They're never going to do it. And, what, and, and through human history, the message has always been the same. The only way out of death is to trust the one who has life. The only way out of death is to trust the one who can give life. That's Christ. Adam sinned. Death entered the world. Death has its way with the world. And then we try to beat death. We try to escape death. We try to avoid death. Meanwhile, all along, God is saying, if you want to beat death, trust me. If you, want to get to this, if you want to get to this vision of the future where old men and old women sit in the streets of Jerusalem and, 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 and each one has their staff in their hand, then trust the one who can give you that future. And so that's the future. Look at verses 7 and 8. I'll close here pretty soon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the west, and I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. You know how many times that phrase is shown throughout the Old Testament? Many times. Particularly when it involves covenant promises. If you look back at Jeremiah chapter 31, 31, 31 through 34, this is one of the major promises of the Old Testament concerning the new covenant. 
It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the days of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their mind and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they all will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. I will be their God and they will be my people. The only way to... The only way that we're going to be able to engage with the future that God has for us is if we trust His Son. Is if we trust, if we trust the promises that He made as shown in His Son. And if we trust God, if we trust the God of, if, if we trust God with, with our present and our future, then we'll be able to, to live into this place, live into this vision that God has for us, where all things are restored. And so the basis, the basis for a secure future is that God would be our God and that we would be His people. And that starts by placing our faith in Him. That starts by trusting Him with our loss, trusting Him with our grief, trusting Him with, with every aspect of our lives. And so these are the promises of God this morning. If you trust Him with all your heart, He will direct your paths, as we said this morning in the call to worship. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is Your Word and we are Your people. And we ask, God, that You would take this Word and You would apply it to our hearts. And that You would help us. Help us to trust You. Help us to see You. Help us to have ears that hear Your Word and obey in response. We ask all of these things and we commit them to You. In the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's have a closing hymn at this time. Turn to one twenty four. Would you say one twenty four? That's all, Sam.
Thank you for your attention and your attendance this morning. Um, remember that uh, um, the regional CPW meeting is Saturday, August the 26th, and that's at Boonville, is that right? Um, now, is there going to be a regular CPW meeting at the end of the month, or am I just imagining that? August 27th, the next day, there will be a local CPW, a church CPW meeting here um, in the fellowship hall at 5 p.m. Uh, remember, Friday, September 8th is going to be our next open forum theology discussion at Midtown. Uh, I'll be sure to put I'll be sure to put the location in the bulletin for next week. Um, and we are looking at having a revival um, October the. 6th through the 8th. That's supposed to be a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, and we're going to get Dennis Crosland to come and preach, and uh, we'll have another speaker, um, kind of like we did last year. And uh, if I can get him, we'll have the River Valley Messengers come and sing. Are there any other announcements? If not, then would you please lift your hands to receive the benediction? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace. Bless you. Well, I tried it. about August the 27th.
had them filmed when they changed the bandaging, I think it was the second time. There were two nurses in there, so I had, had the one to do some film documentation. Oh, good. Yeah. Even on the second one, it was still, you know, blister skin. Of course, they removed every time, you know, they cut, cut the blister and let them bleed out. But anyway, but that wasn't the worst burn. The worst burn was on the side of the leg. That's, that was the third degree. Yeah, did you spill it right all down? Yeah. I, I tripped with it, and, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I think I just went to uh, shock. Yeah. Because, you know, I guess once I start dealing the water, you know, I just, you know, I don't know what's happening. All I know is I'm laying there, and, and you know, and I, I get up, you know, I've got blood coming out of my head, and, mm. and you know, skin's just laid over like I, you know, done a concrete scrape or something. Oh, and, and I, that, and then both wrists were red and swollen. And I thought I may have, you know, busted them when I fell. You know, I, I had no idea what all transpired. Anyway, they x-rayed them. But, uh, on my head, and uh, but then they're telling me, no, that's that's not a scrape, that's burn, that's burn, that's the first, second, you know, <laughs> degree burns. <laughs> <It> is, <laughs> and I didn't get any pain medicine. That was on a Thursday. I was there for seven hours. Got out. It was almost 11 o'clock that night before I got. Uh, Jim got me home, and. Uh, and I, I didn't, I didn't get any pain medication until I went to see the doctor on Saturday to have the bandaging changed. And so until that point, I, you know, I'm just. Anyway. Yeah. It was pretty. But I did get rid of the fire ants. <laughs> Maybe some. Comet kind of works on them sometimes. Sugar? Yeah, I think you I uh, had the chicken strip and I got that uh, sandwich back here. Well, I'm going to buy dinner today. Grandma, if you want to, I'll let you this time. We gotta pay for that car repair tomorrow. <laughs> well, James, that's the thing. James texted me during service, mm -hmm. and he wants to know if I can work a service tomorrow. Um, the problem is, it's gonna have to be there at 7:30, and we gotta get that car. Repair. And I don't know which. Well, Brenda. Oh. Brittany. Uh, could you drop it off and I'll pick it up and I'll follow you and put, pick, uh, put, drop, drop it off at the drugstore? Yeah, that'll work. We'll just, yeah. I'll just get up early. I'm sure I can, uh, I'm sure I can sit over at the funeral home till it's time for me to go or you could just come with us up there. If you could be there by, 
You know what time Oscar's opens in the morning, baby? Eight. Eight? Okay. Don't just get up real early. Well, y'all call and make sure I'm up, okay? Okay. Well, I'll... I usually get up, but I may eat on the other Sometimes you don't want to sleep. <laughs> I know how that is. Oh, you want me to follow you tomorrow, then they can come that off, and I'll take you up. Well, if, you, if it's a little early, we might go somewhere and set for a while to your time to... Yeah, that'll be fine. Whatever. Or you know what? He could leave the car at the, at the funeral home and you could pick it up. Reckon you we could do that? Or are you gonna go on as he goes? Um whichever one you wanna do. I don't know. Maybe let's get some food in us and then we'll do the hard thing. <laughs> so just go ahead and so we'll just follow him then. Probably, probably that's going to be the best thing because I, I, I do have to be in at 8.30. Okay. And oh, Oscars okay. don't open till 8. Oh, that's right. Okay, but well, that won't be too early. No. Uh, Logan, you have to be at the funeral home at 7.30? Yeah. Are you just helping with the service? Or? Yeah. Okay. He said, would you be able to work a service tomorrow morning? I would need you from 7.30 to 1.00. I'm going to say, yeah, that's fine. How much? Don't ask him that. Well, I don't, well I'm not going to do it for free, babe. And I'm not, un, and I'm not hourly anymore, so. What, what do you want me to do? I'd say want me to well Logan uh, maybe you can call me when uh, when you get through if you get through before they do it in your car mm -hmm. and uh, you need me to come pick you up take you mm -hmm. uh, yeah well you call me and let me know when you know and if they don't if, if it's gonna be tomorrow or sometime well uh, I will just have to come pick Brittany up too do I need to find you a toilet oh. uh, Logan talk huh? to me do I need to find you a toilet? What's wrong with you? Uh, yeah, you might need to find me a toilet. Okay. Um, I would say to him, do I need to clock in like I used to? He's going to say no. Or is this going to be an hourly situation or just a lump sum? What would you like me to do? I'm going to say, yeah, that's fine. How much should I charge you for on, on the invoice? How much? Uh, yeah, that's fine. Um, what should I invoice you for? Yeah, um, how much? Should I invoice? How much should I charge y'all on the invoice? How much should I invoice you for? I don't know that invoice is a verb, though. Yes, it is. That's part of my job. Oh. <laughs> I am a drug buyer for the pharmacy. I'm doing what my dad did, but only legal. You see how that works? Yeah. That's fair. <laughs> we may not be able to get the same kind of drug. Well, a lot of it is, honestly, yeah. you know.
agricodone and oxycodone it's basically just legal opium you know Adderall's legal legal speed I mean meth methamphetamine and dextroamphetamine are not that different they do about the same thing Dollar General, or you want me to take you to the gas station? Gas station. Gas station. You got it, dude. Oh, you got your bathroom? Yep. He's a groaning and a, and a clutching his gut. Oh, <laughs> Lord, I don't think he wants the Lord to heal me right now. It might wind up in my pants. Oh. <laughs> well, at least they're the right color. <laughs> I don't think dark brown matches khaki. Well, I thought I had to go for church, and I guess y'all thought I got I fell in, but I won't flush that, and then I had to go again. I, 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 I figured you was just having your usual trouble. <laughs> and uh, so I had to wait, and I tried to went, I went and got some water, and I fucking tried to flush it, and it wasn't flush right. So I had to wait till I could get it done right. That's the reason I went in there first in the room. Oh yeah, that one toilet is, especially since they worked on the water. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.